0: with it. The, you can't do anything with
1: it. My name's Augie with VI Playlist. I'm here with Joe Arrington from Royal Coda, CN Bar, a lot like birds, and pretty much a lot of other things. But <laughs> how are you doing tonight, man?
0: Good. Uh, you. The only thing you missed was Master Griller, because I just grilled teriyaki <laughs> marinade chicken and yes. steak for my family.
1: <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's awesome. You know what's funny is uh, my, I play uh, Roblox with my kids. Nice. And uh, my username for Roblox is Natural Born Griller.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Oh God. In fact, that alone just inspired me to like pun <laughs> Griller into every possible kill or killer. Yes. That. <laughs> That's great.
1: So today we're going to make a playlist of like musical influences and just music you like and things of that nature. Is there anything you want to name this playlist?
0: Okay, so um, I mean, I could split this into like a million categories. Do you want current stuff or old stuff, or or a mm. little bit of both?
1: Okay, so the name of the playlist is just anything you want it to be.
0: Oh man, well, <laughs> um, I would say the soundtrack to my existence.
1: That's pretty good, man. That's pretty good.
0: I try <laughs> really hard. Yeah, it's it's a it's a combination of things, um, and I use that as kind of an analogy. Yeah. But, um,
1: before you started playing drums, uh, is there anything you can remember maybe listening to with your parents that oh, you absolutely. kind of got into?
0: <laughs> okay, so my parents, my father is a professional actor and playwright, and my mother's a musician. Oh, wow. Uh, she taught music in elementary school. And I mean, they literally taught me to dream. You know, they were dreamers and they were creative people. Um, you know, terrible at taxes, but great at <laughs> their, their crafts. And uh, so. Sorry, mom and dad. <laughs> <But> <laughs> they, um, you know, I remember some few memories just to sort of like illuminate this. Um, one thing we used to do is when I was like a kid, kid, like a little kid, we would put on records. Yes, records, vinyl <laughs> records on an old record player that we had that were it was Celtic music. So like <laughs> Irish Celtic music. And we would just dance. Like we would just—it wasn't official dancing, like official dance moves. We would just lose our minds for like three <laughs> hours with Celtic records.
1: That's so awesome. Celtic
0: records. Yeah, I—I I, I mean that—it just taught me to let loose, have fun, and just be myself, so to speak. Um, they also were fans of big production music, and when I say that, that really references like movie soundtracks. So atmosphere music, music that, uh, music that is able to sort of like illuminate uh an emotion or an atmosphere for a cinematic perspective i got like you know oh this is a sad song this is a happy song this is an action moment um and this was in like you know this was in the late 80s early 90s (laughs) we had to get like cassette tapes of disney movies and and uh and danny elfman films and stuff like that but yeah so that's the kind of stuff um that along with they did have a penchant for um, like smooth jazz. My mother and my father would listen to a lot of smooth jazz radio stations. And I, I found that stuff to be very satisfying to listen to even as a kid before I even considered being a musician or anything. I was like, oh, this is very moody. Cool. I, you know, my dad is working to this <laughs> smooth jazz. This is <laughs> so that's um, and my I grew up Mormon in Utah um, I'm I'm no longer Mormon, but my, I grew up Mormon in Utah, and my mother, who was a musician, is she was she was obsessed with turning Mormon, like sort of like Quaker folk hymns into yeah. modern music, and so I woke up every Saturday morning with her playing piano and singing, and uh, so that that was a very poignant thing for me, you know. So sorry, yeah, lo- long long explanation, but oh, I remember great, being man. a kid. All that's that awesome. stuff mattered to me a lot.
1: That's really cool, man. That, so your, your parents or your dad was, your mom was a musician and your dad was a, was like a Broadway actor kind of?
0: Well, the, the crazy thing is, is he actually got a Broadway offer when he was younger, but he decided that he wanted to stay in Utah and um, make, like make plays and things there kind of based on the, um, the history there. And, I mean, obviously it was a good choice because I wouldn't exist if he didn't make that choice. <laughs> <Brian>. <laughs> he, went to, he went to acting school. I think it's called ACT. He went to acting school in San Francisco, and then he chose to settle down and have a family in Utah. And, um, you know, but he he's done one man shows. I mean, I don't, I don't, this isn't like a plug, you know, he's but he's done some amazing things. And it really helped that my parents understood my my drive to be an artist. Yeah, and think for myself. So, uh, so yeah.
1: For sure, definitely. Uh, do you remember any of the names of those uh, like Celtic artists you used to listen to when you were when you were younger?
0: Oh man, I, I feel so bad. I don't. The, in that's fact, fun. there's a lot of stuff back then that I don't even. I could maybe find it post podcast. Yeah. Because uh, what I could do is like literally ask my mother, be like, "Hey, do you remember those records?" She'll probably have yeah. ten. Artists, <laughs> you know. So well, that's if I, fine. If I could, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no if problem. If you post uh post recording, then we can do that.
1: <laughs> you wanna do the same thing with the smooth jazz? You remember any of the jazz musicians or anything?
0: Well, yes, because a lot of that stuff carried over into my, my next era of listening. I mean, oh, did it?
1: give <laughs> well, yeah, me some jazz yeah. artists, man. Let's go with some jazz artists then.
0: Well it was hilarious because at the time I was like, Oh my dad listened to the smooth jazz. That's a, that's great. But um Later on, I realized that a lot of the artists at the time that were cooking up really great smooth jazz were artists that I all admired because I loved the drummers they played for. Um, the best one that comes to mind is Lee rittenhauer he <laughs> that dude um, he's a guitarist and a composer and an arranger, and I mean he's like pretty pretty common. He's like a, a very common name thrown around the jazz fusion spectrum. Yeah. But what's crazy is that his stuff was so beautifully like cheesy kind of elevator music stuff at the same time that even though he shreds and all the musicians he plays with shred, uh, you know, cosmic universes with their instruments, he also played <laughs> very digestible smooth jazz. Yeah. And so I, when I started studying, jazz and jazz fusion later <laughs> i came to lee rettenauer where i was like wait a sec i, re- I recognize these songs <laughs> <laughs> and i was like this is the cheesy st- my dad listened to in like 1991 and then i found out that my favorite drummer of all time vinnie Calyuta, played on his records so this is a little poetic but like little seven-year-old joe was just listening to his dad uh, w- w- was, you know, listening to his dad, listening to Lee Rettenauer with who would soon be his favorite drummer of all time playing on the records.
1: So, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Full circle, right?
0: <laughs> pretty insane. It's, it's pretty like when I heard the songs, I was like, wait a second. This is way too poetic. This is too perfect.
1: Right. I'm looking at uh, his discography on Spotify and good night, yep. man. I think the last thing he released was 2015.
0: Yeah, he's still cook. He's still killing it. Actually,
1: man, and then like I think 1977 was the first release. Wow,
0: he's a beast. I mean, some (laughs) of these some of these jazz fusion artists. You know, when when people, I mean, I don't want to derail us too much, but when people at shows ask me who my favorite drummers are, I think they're expecting me to say like, oh, this. I mean, like like maybe drop like five names from drummers in the genre that I play in. Yeah, and weirdly it couldn't be further from the truth um all the drummers that i look up to and i've i've sort of studied in my life are all like career oriented i I should say career oriented session players yeah that record for a lot of people tour for a lot of people but they're like jacks of all trades you know they're like those kinds of drummers that like no matter what if you hire them for your record they're going to just annihilate and just do amazing things yeah so So the reason I say that is because when I bring up Lee Rittenauer, he is that way on guitar. Like he has his own career, but like, he's the kind of guy who can just, you know, Hey, come play a solo on my Afro Cuban, (laughs) you know, jazz fusion song. And he will come and just make, he'll slay it.
1: (laughs) So that's uh, awesome.
0: Yeah. And so my, my favorite, some of my favorite drummers have played with him. Um, In fact, Right now, there's a Scottish drummer, and I actually forgot his name. I feel terrible, but he recorded with Jesus Molina from Berkeley College of Music. Uh, he is currently he's like 19 or 20 years old, which is unbelievable, and he's touring with Lee um, Oh, Wow! Well, not now, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no yeah. one's touring now, but so yeah. So uh, you know, is there a couple
1: uh, of songs from uh, from Lee Rettenauer that just kind of stick it out to you?
0: Yeah, there's there's one called. Um, um, Oh, oh oh yeah um Get Up Stand Up is a really good one There's a song called Bullet Train and here's why people need to listen to Bullet Train Bullet Train is the perfect example of a jazz fusion form So if you're a music nerd and you want to like learn jazz form because jazz isn't like a time feel it's like a it's like a philosophy it's like a way to play music Yeah You know it's like AABA it's like the song form kind of stuff and then we're going to solo over the the chorus etc. <laughs> Bullet train is a great example because the way they form the way he sort of organized that song was so amazing and it's cheesy as heck. I mean like you listen to that song and you're like, Oh my god like this just teleported me to like working on a black and white Macintosh computer in nineteen eighty nine. But it it's the drumming is with Steve Gadd, who's one of my favorite drummers, and that shouldn't come as a surprise or be that sh- or, be, or be that interesting for people because steve gad is one of the best drummers of all time he's revered and he's been on like you know a thousand records but steve gad's drumming on that song is so incredibly tasteful uh his, his <laughs> and this was this was before people could like punch in and like you know let me take that chorus again it's like no you get one take like you you get you have to be gangster <laughs> one right? type yeah. of take. you know and so his drumming on that song, I studied it and learned it for a while because it was, I was like, this guy is so tasteful.
1: All right. Well, so we, we started off the uh, the playlist with Lee Rettenauer. Uh, is there, so I'm assuming that your parents, being uh, musicians and, and, of course, stage actor, had something to do with you uh, learning the drums?
0: Yeah. Well, my parents always encouraged. I think the biggest way I can describe it is that my parents always encouraged uh, creativity, uh, which sounds cheesy. You know, like you know, It's like an after-school special. Like, Encourage creativity <laughs> with your children. It's like, well, yeah, but they believed in creativity because it was part of their career. And so, and bless my parents because there were a lot of things they didn't have to do. And my dad wasn't so much like, let's go out back and play baseball. It was more like, we would see an Indiana Jones movie and he would say, did <laughs> you like that movie, Joe? And I would say, I don't know. It scared the crap out of me because the guy was the skeleton at the end. And he'd say, well, what didn't you like? And he would, he would kind of guide me through like how to break down the creative process, even at a young age, he'd be like, well, you know, he, we would talk about narratives. You know, we would talk about like, why the story made sense or why it didn't or if the movie was fun enough maybe why the the story didn't have to make sense because it was just a fun <laughs> movie so things like that led to i i took um i took about four years of piano when i was a kid and i hated it i was like i hate <laughs> piano lessons i hate practicing Piano's stupid my teacher's stupid she's old you know i this my parents are forcing me to play an instrument um I just want to sit on my fat butt and like play video games or whatever. (laughs) Um, But when I um, started junior high, so I was 11, 11 going on 12, they made me pick an instrument. They're like, you can either do choir or (laughs) (laughs) not, not actually. But at the time I was like, oh, choir. Like I have to sing and all that bs right (laughs) Um, you have to pick either choir or an instrument and so i went through you know i ran i ran the gamut like i was like uh brass uh, strings no like you know everyone's so nerdy and i i I don't know i just i was so opposed to it but i had to choose one and um this uh the junior high did like a little assembly where they went around all the elementary schools and they showcased what you could choose they're like here's the violin. And some little kid in a shirt and tie was like, you know, and it's like, you know, no one was a good player. They were just showcasing what you could learn. Yeah. And I was so uninvolved. I was like, this is the dumbest thing. You know, <laughs> I wasn't a punk. I was just, I was in my own world. You know, I was a, I was a dreamer. I was thinking about uh, Star Wars and, and, you know, video games. And then they were like, also you could play the drum set. And you know, this, i actually remember this little kid he was he had red hair covered in freckles shirt and tie and he was sitting at this very badly set up drum set um and i only know <laughs> that now of course but i remember very I, I remember this very vividly he played this gnarly little drum solo you know <laughs> you know no tempo at but my brain exploded I was watching this kid and I was like, Oh, I forgot about the drum set. <laughs> I <laughs> forgot that existed, you know? I've yeah. seen it in the news and I've seen it on TV, but I just And so, you know, mom, dad, I want to be a drum set player. They're like, oh, Okay, that's a funny story. I was like, No, really, I and they were like, oh, Okay. So <laughs> I gotta
1: pick the loudest instrument.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're like oh and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were looking to the next five years they're like no yeah. please don't stick with this <laughs> but um but i cared and i i you know i i went and i let's see i i started with the drum pad and snare drum and symphonic orchestra and the, and the bass drum and i did suspended cymbal and and uh played the triangle and like john williams medleys and the timpani i learned to read and i learned orchestral dynamics and all that stuff, which led to me playing the drum set at the end of uh, junior high. And by the time I graduated from ninth grade, uh, junior high at the time, I played When I Come Around by Green Day on the drum set with a goofy little band in front of the entire school. And that was technically my first official drum set gig. Oh,
1: wow.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. And I was terrible. But it was (laughs) So...
1: (laughs) When I was looking things up about you, uh, you are from Utah.
0: Yes, I grew and up in and
1: Moved to California. Yeah. What made you make that move? Was it the music scene, or?
0: Yeah, it's a combination of things. Um, so, it's—I mean, I don't want to try to blow it up into a big long story, but Utah has an incredible—and I, I actually can't speak about this current, but at the time, like. I had a I had a mentor in Utah named well he's still my mentor technically he's his name is Jay Lawrence but he's one of the best drummers I've ever seen in my entire life and he just lived in a small town in Utah and he made you know six figures playing the drum set after not even graduating Berkeley College of Music so you know he he was like an outlier he was like somebody that really inspired me and he was he's been my mentor for years I studied with him uh, a lot but the reason I bring him up is because Utah has a really killer educational music scene. So like there's amazing jazz players in Utah and there's some amazing like music courses at the colleges in Utah. But there's really not like a scene for gigging much. There's really not a lot of wedding bands. There's really not. And part of that's cultural. Part of it's geographic. It's there's a lot of things that go into that. Um, people can argue me all day, but I will tell you that growing up near Salt Lake City, it's one of the most culturally diverse places ever. And, you know, people can all day be like, what? No, wait, That Utah's like, you know, it's, it's a, but I grew up being very, like, I grew up being exposed to so much cultural stuff. Like I, you know, so, so I, I can tell you exactly, but basically there's no gigging scene there, you know? Yeah. Uh, or at least not much of one at the time. So, um, when I got an offer to join a band in California, I was 25. I had practiced my butt off for years. I had cultivated my skill as a drummer so hard and I was trying so hard. I was playing in swing bands. I was, I was sight reading. I was, um, playing a lot of jazz and, I was trying to start a country band. I mean, all kinds of things going on. (laughs) I also, this is a weird part of history. I also had finally recorded my first EP officially um, with a band called, this is a weird mouthful, but it's a band called riots of 80. Uh, It's a, it's, it's a, um, it's a reference to an old book, but riots of 80 was like kind of an under oath inspired hardcore band. Um, And that was my first record. Which I did with a guy who recorded Primus, who handed me my butt. He, oh wow! Yeah, I my first recording was terrible. I couldn't stay with the click. I was just an <laughs> absolute nightmare. And he he like handed me my butt on a silver platter. He's like, you can't play to a click. You're not you're you're creative, but you're a terrible player. You need to go practice. Yeah. And you know, of course that hurt my ego, but I use that as fuel to be like, okay, well maybe, maybe he's right. <laughs> maybe I should care about this in a different way. So, so I went through a lot of that. Um, so is but- it
1: different playing like band high school versus, uh, I, I wasn't in band or anything like that, but there's a different playing in that setting versus playing like in a studio with a click track?
0: Well, very much so. It depends on your cultivation of the skill. Like if, you know, if at 13 years old, your drum teacher is like, you need to learn to play to a metronome. You got to be ready to record. You know, I just didn't know all this stuff. Yeah. Um, I will say that my high school experience catered so much to drumming. I, I didn't even really mean to do this, but I just sort of enrolled in what I wanted to. And then it just sort of happened. I was in the drum line. So I played marching stuff. Which I found very militant and not very loose and it was a little unsatisfying no offense to anybody because they're incredible but like it just wasn't for me but that did teach me to focus on my rudiments and a lot of other things and I learned a ton with those cats so drumline I also played in the symphonic orchestra so we were I was still doing these like Disney medleys and like "This this is the John Williams you know like Star Wars songs and stuff in front of our parents you know like 25 people (laughs) filling up a 250 cap auditorium at at the high school but they're there to support their kids and you know i was like man i'm playing suspended cymbal i have two parts in the entire song you know i was still (laughs) doing that and then um but the best part of that experience was i also joined the jazz band so i actually joined an official jazz band in high school where i was really kicking figures with like a big band and we played all kinds of great tunes. And I learned so much doing that. That was, <laughs> that was so important.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm bad. Yeah, for sure.
0: So interesting contrast is that on top of all this, I met some punk rock friends. And I mean, I guess I joined high school. High school was like 1999. Wow, I'm 36. But um, my, I met some friends that were like super into no effects and all these like underground pop punk bands. And it stuck. I was obsessed. So I'm very grateful that my musical trajectory as a teenager, I didn't even know it at the time, but I was kicking figures with a big band, playing orchestral like timpani and bass drum and snare, really focusing on my rudiments and stuff with drumline. And then on the weekends, I was playing like underground ska punk shows with my band Porkchop. (laughs) Which was a three piece and we call ourselves pork chop because all three of us were chubby. So I had this like punk rock intensity as well. So I I kind of didn't really know, I didn't realize I was doing this, but I was kind of assimilating a lot of musical uh, possibilities at once. So that that's, yeah. that was my high school musical experience.
1: That's awesome. I was actually that was actually what I was going to ask you about is you mentioned Green Day, so I put that song on the playlist when I come around, since it was one of your first.
0: Yeah, that uh, song um, to play. Um, uh, what was that song? Do you have the time? It's so popular. Oh um, yeah, um, Basket Case. Yeah. yeah. My wife and I could just sing Basket Case to you word for word right now. You <laughs> know? Um, oh for sure. We'll see, I mean, my high school playlist. Um, chop suey by system of a down oh of Um, course um, yeah i mean these are things that really shaped me when i was that age um although there was a lot of music on the radio i thought was pretty awful too at the same time that everybody else loved um (laughs) let's see um no use for a name and i no use for a name was an amazing band but they never really quite got the fame that i thought they deserved um That was
1: uh, Bo Birchall did uh, their mixing and mastering, didn't he? he? He was the producer on one of their albums, wasn't
0: he? Maybe, but that would make me very happy because he's a good friend of mine. I'm uh, pretty
1: sure he was. I think he was.
0: That's amazing. That dude is a beast.
1: Oh, but man, yeah.
0: I think my favorite No Use For a Name song is International You Day. It's, just, it's a song. I, in fact, I played that song on uh, the morning that I got married to my wife. We were together and we were reminiscing about punk rock songs, and I played that song, and it was very emotional. So, international yeah. U Day by uh, No Use for a Name, that's and I could awesome. go on with plenty more, but you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's good. I mean, we've got uh, Green Day and System of Down. No use for a name. That's perfect. Yeah, because yeah, I know you mentioned uh, the punk rock, so I kind of I wanted to ask about those bands. You you play with it, or you prefer a single pedal instead of a double pedal?
0: Yeah, man, my left foot is so lazy. I can't be expected (laughs) to just learn all this crap with my other foot. You know, I already spent (laughs) all this time. Right,
1: I got. Um, I I don't know if maybe it was just more comfortable for you, or
0: um, and I've had to play double kick. Like I've, I've, I recorded double pedal on conversation piece, and I have a, I have three singles with a band called In Black and White from Florida that I'm doing double kick. Actually, some pretty heavy double kick action on soon. Um. I don't really know why that's a thing for me. Like I, it's, I do kind of like, I don't want to call it a challenge necessarily, but you know, the hi-hat is my favorite voice on the entire kit. And, um, it's such a cool texture to add to drumming and grooves and fills and things that I grew up obsessed with integrating the hi-hat into what I was doing. And my, my left foot was so hi hat, centric that I just when double bass like became apparent to me at first I was like oh sick and then I was like this feels so weird like playing (laughs) a second kick drum pedal with my left foot feels weird and I just couldn't get into the mentality and now here's the thing I don't want this to be confused with not respecting it because I mean lord have mercy there are some double kick players out there that do astronomically cool things i mean i could i could name them you know there's it's amazing and i've had to study it um i will say that if you're a serious drummer you will focus on both your feet enough that when you pick up a double kick it you should already kind of have an idea of how to excel at it like for the gigs and records i've done you know i'm a serious career enough career oriented enough player that i know how to okay uh, like i know the 10 exercises i need to drill every morning (laughs) to get my left foot in shape to do the double kick stuff um yeah (laughs) you know so it'd be like a classical piano player and then someone's like hey can you do like a jazz record and they're like i i don't do jazz very often but the money's right and the music is right so it's like okay like i'm gonna get in the jazz mentality you know i'm gonna i'm gonna just get in that So, um, I just, I love, I I also find that when you practice and play with one kick pedal and your left foot is, uh, tethered to the hi hat, so to speak, there is a little bit of a different mental focus to play things differently. Um, well, obviously (laughs) it's like, that's like saying you have a certain amount of strings on a guitar versus another amount of strings, like obviously new doors open up some close. And so with a double kick pedal, some doors open up and some kind of close mentally and likewise. So if I don't have a double kick pedal and I'm just playing with my hi hat and my single kick, certain doors kind of open mentally um that may not have been possible otherwise because you're um as an artist limiting yourself is not, it's not a problem. It shouldn't yeah. be a problem. You know, it's like, like my students, half the time I tell them like, you know what, do this with just two voices, like just your snare drum and your floor tom. If you limit yourself, it'll actually it stimulate creati- creativity because you have less options to, to work with. And so more has to come from your your brain, more yeah. has to come from your mind. And so um, I don't think about it when I play, but kick drum wise, yeah single pedal is just my sort of home base but i respect double pedal a lot and i grew up playing you know when i was younger as you just heard like a lot of it was jazz and 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 based in that world and yeah that's there's a lot there's not a lot of double bass in that world um at least not as much um and yeah, i think I it's more
1: prevalent in the stuff that you play now which is uh that's really the reason why i want to ask about it is because uh, the post hardcore genre is kind of like, that's like a double, you know, double pedal field. So it's just, it's, you're like one of the off drummers who doesn't use that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, double, double pedal <laughs> and on, on the other side, I should say the double pedal is also an easy way to kind of, uh, I don't want to say cheat because that's not fair because, uh, <laughs> I know so many respectable drummers that use double pedal and they, they don't use it to cheat so much as they just use it for tasteful things and, uh, you know, consistent 16th notes and patterns between the, the feet with a kick drum. But I will say that it's it's um, double pedal is a weird thing that can be kind of a, a cheat. Uh, and this is <laughs> I am not putting down any drummer who's using this this as a cheat like this, you know, bless all of you. Um, but, uh, the double pedal does allow you to do a double kick stroke. I'm I'm amazed we're getting this deep into it, but like a double (laughs) kick stroke that kind of, um, you know, it necessitates the both feet doing a double kick stroke instead of one foot doing a double stroke. And like growing up, like your right foot on the kick drum had to be a beast you had to be able to do double strokes triple strokes you had to be a freaking monster um in fact playing pop punk was the first time i learned that that sort of like <laughs> no effects like yeah 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 i when i first listened to that i was like how is this guy doing this it's got to be a double pedal you know he's got to be going you know uh right right left right right left, you know both feet but then i saw a video of him probably on some you know I was young, so I don't even know how I found a video, but um, I was like, man, this guy's using one pedal. How is that possible? And I tried to do it heel down, not happening, you know, not <laughs> enough power. And I, I literally remember vividly the day where I was sitting in my basement and I kind of muscled out that double stroke with my foot heel up. And my brain literally leaked out my ears. It exploded. I was like, (laughs) like, you know, like the the meme, like the third eye. (laughs) Knowledge. And ever since then, I was so intrigued by and interested in like the the single pedal technique. Because you really you really gotta nail that with both feet. If you if you're serious and you really want to do it, like like you really want to do music seriously, you kind of gotta nail it. Both, you know? So that's my exasperated, very long, drawn out description (laughs) of that.
1: The song is Trails by the band Merlin, spelled M-R-L-N. This is for fans of Tiny Moving Parts, Nova Charisma, Stolas. If you enjoy this, you can listen to them anywhere you stream music, so like Spotify, Apple Music. Make sure to go follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at M-R-L-N Band H-T-X. And if you want a shout out or anything like that, I have a buy me a coffee. Uh, So you can go to Coffee slash Pod, and you can get a shout out. You can get your song played at the end of the episode, anything like that. Also, make sure you stay tuned for the end of the episode because Cicadia will be premiering a song off of their new EP that comes out this fall. And a big shout out to Dylan Brooks. He is the drummer for Cicadia. He actually helped me with this episode. So thank you. And we are going to get back to the episode. Thank you very much. The first like popular project I assume that you did was it was it a lot like Birds?
0: Yeah, Birds. Birds was the project that like mm, sort of took off, you know. Um, That's uh
1: that was more so a lot of the bands you mentioned were pop punk or you know things like that. A lot like Birds was more in the post-hardcore genre. Uh did you even listen to that kind of music when you
0: No, not at all. In fact, <laughs> when when Kurt when when Kurt Travis came to our little show, and was like, I want to, like, meet these guys and audition and just, like, hang with these guys. The band was like, dude, guess who, guess, like, you know, I had just moved to Sacramento. And people were like, dude, guess who wants to come hang out? And I was like, who? Who wants to, who, who, some singer or something? Like, Kurt Travis. And I was like, <laughs> who? <laughs> Kurt who? Was <laughs> he, like, part of some pop band? I don't know who he was. And they were like, wait dance gavin dance and i had heard of dance i had heard the name dance gavin dance briefly but i had no clue i hadn't heard a song i, I didn't know who they were um i i listened to bands like thrice and avenge sevenfold their older stuff and uh and 18 vision some fun bands from california and stuff but i i and like i liked under oath and stuff but i i wasn't the biggest fan of screaming like it, it was like it was kind of hit or miss with me. And so there were a lot of bands in that genre that I was just like, eh. And so Dance Gavin Dance is a little bit of an extension from that scene, obviously. And so when I heard about it, I was like, oh, cool. That's great. They're like, no, dude, you don't understand. I was like, apparently I don't. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> so Kurt came in and he sang with us and we, the first song, I think we officially finished as a band was tantrum from conversation piece. And he wanted to join, I thought his voice was great, and he was a nice guy. So I was like, "Well, I'm sold,"
2: <laughs> you right, know. Yeah.
0: Like I don't. So conversation piece happened, and uh, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with Kurt Travis's moniker, like his or like his status. I think people were like, oh, "Kurt Travis is in a new band, so let's listen." And
1: um, oh, for sure, definitely, and that was a that was a a lot like birds was a Michael Franzino project, correct? Oh yeah. He's the one that put together. Is that the reason you moved to Cali was for a lot like birds or was that a different band?
0: No. There was a band no. called Mozart Season. Oh yeah, okay. It was kind of under OT. Yeah. And they had they had asked me to come out and play for them, so I I did, but I also made a lot of really terrible personal life choices at the time and that affected my life immensely. And it affected those guys too, I feel terrible. Um, but we all go through that kind of stuff, and oh, sure. i recorded um, actually there's there 's an album by Mozart season where you can hear my drumming this is this is a see, this is like a <laughs> not a lot of people have heard this it 's called nightmares i think um, it 's an e p plus three songs, and the three songs that are additional to the e p are the ones I recorded on and uh, their e p was called apotheosis and I love those dudes, but it kind of fell apart. Um, a lot, some of it was my fault, but they also had jobs and other career things they were following. And it is what it is. Yeah. I had used Mozart season as a I was like, I have to get out of Utah. I want to go play for a band outside of the state. And so I had an unregistered car, put all my belongings in my car and just left to California and slept on a couch for months. And um, in the middle of all my personal crisis, little teenage Michael Franzino at the time called me. And I love this story. He had seen a YouTube drum solo of mine. He thought I was like a 45-year-old dude because the video <laughs> was so dark and I was kind of chubby at the time. So he was like um, – he called me up and asked me to jam. And my favorite part of that is that despite me being – despite him thinking I was this like middle-aged guy, he still hit me up to play for a long time. <laughs> that's my – that's the best thing ever. <laughs> so we got together. And we jammed and I was like, it was kind of a Mars Volta vibe. I was like, man, this guy's got some weird ideas. I love yeah. this. And I was dealing with enough personal darkness at the time that, um, having that as kind of a musical remedy to my restlessness was a really great, um, sort of, uh, what's the word? Anyway, it was, it was a great time. And oh, for sure, we, yeah. we wrote a record pretty quickly with Kurt and recorded it. And, It's really funny how it all worked out because I, I went through a lot. I mean, when I first heard the mixes from conversation piece, I was sleeping on an acquaintances couch in Sacramento, California in a really, really nasty apartment, um, with no air conditioning in July with no job. And here, you know, here I am cooking, like, (laughs) <laughs> Here I'm cooking like spaghetti for myself on this, you know, little stove with like 15 bucks in my bank account, listening to these Chris Crummett mixes, and I'm just like, "This is amazing! This is so cool!" Even though my life is terrible,
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right.
0: So, yeah, uh,
1: at least at least I'm out of out of Utah, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, literally. I mean, <laughs> obviously things have picked up since it picked up quickly, but um, yeah. But I just remember those days. It was kind of nuts.
1: Let's uh, let's take a pause real quick and go back to you said Apotheces by Mozart. Season you were on?
0: No, so Apotheosis. Oh, okay. Is that, wait, is that how you say it, Apotheces? Apothe- no,
1: I think it's Apotheosis. I think you had. I think I messed it up.
0: That's <laughs> all good. I mean, it could be either way. I I see that yeah. word all the time, and it's a it's a really fancy word. Yeah. I was not on Apotheosis. There are three songs that I recorded in addition to that. Oh, okay. Um, that they released through equal vision as like a package one one song is called nightmares and okay. there's two others i don't remember what they're called but um i think one's called rage factor 11 I, I don't know but yeah so three songs i recorded and that was right before i left them and kind of went through my personal crisis and yeah. joined. so
1: do you mind if i put one of those songs on there uh they have the nightmares ep nightmares. nightmares is probably the
0: best example so yeah
1: Okay, and then you said, uh, I know you said Thrice. Is there a song by Thrice you want to throw in here?
0: Yeah, um, let's just say The Artist in the Ambulance.
1: Yeah, they were, oh man, it's such a good band.
0: Genius, genius stuff.
1: A Pinch Sevenfold.
0: Oh man, Awaken the Fallen? Is that a record or a song? I don't even
1: remember. Awaken the Fallen. That was, the, that was their first with uh, Unholy Confessions. And...
0: Yeah, Awaken the Fallen. That's, it's a song too. Just okay. Go for it.
1: Yeah, uh, on there, uh, and then <laughs> and uh, for that
0: era too, you might as well put Dragon Force on there.
1: <laughs> Dragon Force—they—they they became popular with uh, all their insane guitar solos and oh my yeah. god, right.
0: Yeah, those dudes are well. Okay, yeah. So through the fire and flames by Dragon Force—that <laughs> was my teenage.
1: <laughs> so Michael Franzino, I've I've kind of been following him for a while, and that dude, he. Is insane when it comes to like, so they I think they're working with uh, Drew Owens right now on his solo.
0: Yes, they're doing some kind of like synthwave inspired project. That
1: thing Um, is insane. I've watched those videos.
0: (laughs) No, they're brilliant. They're doing brilliant.
1: With the way I've seen and what I've heard about him, is he hard to work with as far as like being a perfectionist or I mean, is he pretty easygoing or?
0: So that that's a supercharged question and i have the perfect way to answer it <laughs> um so franzino and i we have definitely butted heads in the past and we've de- but we've also done really great things and so franzino rare mind he, he he is an amalgamation of a lot of uh really really beautiful and some chaotic things as a person and that is showcased in his music um he is a the way I describe him is music is a science to Franzino. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't have emotion or feel or mood, because obviously it does. Everyone's very aware of that. Yeah. But um, music is a science in that he is kind of trying to achieve this like anatomically cosmically perfect musical possibility. And that's that's actually a beautiful trajectory if you think about it. It's like let's make the perfect song. It's like yes, yeah. why wouldn't we? Let's make the perfect song. I think the Beatles tried for a long time, you know, let's make the <laughs> perfect song. But um I come from a school of thought that says the perfect song doesn't exist or that maybe every song ever written is the perfect song because I'm an improvisational player and so when I play things like jazz um it's never played the same way twice so you can't really judge a song because it's going to be different next time there's going to be a yeah. different drum bill a different solo so we were a very interesting duo writing together because we kind of had different schools of thought and it it both benefited and hurt us um i was very improvisational i wanted to get in a room and just jam you know i just wanted to like <laughs> shred and just like let's just Come up with ideas, which is kind of how CMVAR and Royal Dakota wrote and currently write music. Birds was more like he wanted sort of like drum skeletons from me. Uh, we called them, where <laughs> I put a collection of drum groups together, and then we, and then I would record them. Uh, this is literally what happened with conversation in no place. I would find a collection of drum beats that meant something to me. I had an emotional cl- connection to them. I they were interesting to me they were an extension of who i was and then i would record them and um i would send the recording to him but here's the crazy part i would send them to him at like eight o'clock at night i would wake up the next morning with an entire song in my inbox <laughs> he would sit there probably in his underwear eating taco bell and a beer i don't know i don't know <laughs> just just he would he would experiment note by note, trying to figure out how to make this the craziest, coolest, most interesting, best song ever. And of course, when I opened the messages, like the, the emails, my my brain exploded. I was like, like what? <laughs> how? <laughs> how did you? Do, how did you come up with this in one night? You know? And he did that consistently. Um, and that is my testament to his incredible mind is that he was able to put that together. And there were other ways that our songs assimilated too, but he just, I mean, that was a, con- that was a consistent theme as he would just do that. Yeah. And, um, so, so I guess what I'm getting at is I don't go back to examine every splash hit, every hi-hat note, every part. Michael prefers to analyze every part and analyze it and do 30 takes to get the perfect ideal <laughs> for the song. I'm like, I'm like, Hey, I just shredded this crazy take. We're keeping it. You know, (laughs) we we were kind of opposites in that way, but it also created what you can now listen to as conversation piece, no place in Divisi and alone. So to argue that it wasn't a good thing is ridiculous. Like, obviously we had a great relationship, but, um, I think the way my father explained the, the, the saying my father always said is, um, Friction makes fire, so you know if you want to create something bombastic, something impactful, it doesn't mean you're going to get along the whole time (laughs) or agree. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, There's another thing I wanted to talk to you about is divisi. So y'all recorded divisi without Kurt. Yeah, Uh, was that odd to do? Because I know you had worked with Kurt for like six or seven years before.
0: Yeah, it was. The divisi process was difficult for me. I um. I wasn't entirely on board with the vision, and that is not to uh, like that's not to dismantle what Michael tried to do. You know, everyone. I think it was Socrates that said that no man knowingly does evil, which basically means that everyone has their own vision, their own agenda. Yeah, I think they're trying to accomplish. And even at the time, I was like, I know what Michael's trying to go for, and I know what we're trying to achieve, but it just wasn't me. And, you know, I had made an identity for myself as kind of a proggy, kind of shreddy drummer, which whatever, it, it doesn't matter. It, there, there wasn't even a whole lot of ego in it other than the artistic ego. But I just the songs were not resonating with me. I was like, OK, this isn't like these just don't speak to me the way songs have in the past *The the like birds plus Kurt's gone. It's just hard. And so yeah. I I had a hard time connecting the same way. The demoing process was hard. Um, I wasn't feeling very inspired. The crazy thing is, is that after tracking and releasing the I listened back and still some of the proudest songs I've ever been a part of. Like there's some incredible stuff in there.
1: Yeah, for sure. And
0: you can, I mean, the lyrics are ridiculous. Like Corey mm-hmm. knocked it out of the park. Um, but the whole was potentially not greater than the sum of its parts, not just in the record, but in the tours, in the band dynamics, um, a lot of stuff was just kind of antankerous without even meaning to be. And, uh, no one really wanted to talk about it or say it. And, uh, by the end of the second tour with Divisi with Emma Rosa, we, it, we, the, 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 album had clearly not done great. And that's a hard thing to admit. And I am not saying, you know, I am proud of it. I'm proud of the dudes. I'm proud of everything we did. I, I loved the process, um, but it just—I think didn't. that's a
1: hard one, though, because you know y'all lost a key member. Uh, not everybody can come back from that. I think Dance Gavin Dance, they've done it twice, and they're like—I mean. That's, I mean, that's insane. You know, it's like lightning strike in the same spot three times. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's no. not something easy, you know, to, to do because people get bitter, you know, oh, they, you know, you lost Kurt, and people are bitter about it. And But Corey Lockwood is, I mean, he's a hell of a vocalist. Uh, I enjoy everything <laughs> that he's done. But I think people, now that the dust have, has kind of settled, I've heard more about how good Vizzy is. Than, than I've ever have.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, that, that album has taken a weird turn. It's like all yeah. of a sudden, I see it posted more than any other album, and I'm like, what the frick? It's, <laughs> it's, it's weird, because the music industry is also very difficult, because you really can't predict things properly. It's like you can yeah. predict things all you want, but it, it kind of never the way you anticipate. Um, and trying to cater to people who already listen to you people don't realize how hard that is. <laughs> yeah. It's like, how do you ask yourself, do what you want, but also cater to the people who are, well, essentially paying your bills at that point. Right. It's very difficult. And people don't consider that, you know, <laughs> if you release a record that nobody likes, boom, you're tanked, you're done. It's over. Um, and then maybe you could have a comeback or you're just done. So it's like, yeah. there's so many things to, con- um, and Divisi was a risk. Uh, clearly, and I did leave the band uh, after the second Divisi tour. I mean, I, I don't mind saying that publicly. Like, I made the yeah. choice to be like, I'm separating myself out. It was not easy. That was a very difficult time. I mean, it didn't time.
1: make it very long after that anyways, did it?
0: No, I mean, yeah. there there were talks of recording another record and getting Kurt back and all kinds of things, but we. I just, like... You know, sometimes it just takes somebody just to be sort of like a, it's like somebody has to be brutally honest at some point. It's like, hey, yeah. this isn't working, you know, and I'm still friends with all those guys. Like we, 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 we're still homies. We communicate. Um, I still work with a lot of them, obviously, but yeah, it's just sometimes things just aren't always meant to be. And some people think that just because a band is like their favorite band, that Enough of a reason for it to be for it to exist. It's like no, this band. This is going to sound mean, but I'm going to say it. This band technically doesn't owe you anything. Um, they have broken their backs to tour and make a record and all kinds of things. You got the music. You've seen them live. At that point, really doesn't owe anybody anything. Yeah. People like to talk about how often, like, you owe us an explanation or another record. It's like, no. Are you kidding? This is yeah my livelihood you know this these are the this is <laughs> you have no clue what's going on internally you know who knows like someone could have cancer like there's yeah for sure like, your guitarist could get in an act and lose his right arm if he's the main composer that's the band it's gone it's done and so people tend to have this kind of weird personal relationships to bands where when they break up or something happens people are like oh this is insane my life is over like i <laughs> The unreal i'm gonna go have a constant drain and an, drain animal blood and like I, it's like no <laughs> you know people <laughs> put out art at certain times for certain reasons um and it exists it's like a movie you know it's there but it doesn't it doesn't owe you anything
1: no oh, for sure i yeah. glad
0: that you got something from it but that's it like that's yeah. that's the end And people have a very hard time sort of like (laughs) accepting that. And I get it because we develop very close relationships with the music we listen to myself included, but, um, the, the freak out after birds, you know, I got an influx of messages, like what happened to birds? And especially when people found (laughs) out, man, they were like, like, I, I actually got like angry messages. You just broke up my favorite. Like, (sighs) sorry, (laughs) you know, i mean my my, uh, i think the most i think one of the most important things i realized um my wife said that uh, my sweet wife tara said that um towards the end of bird's career i was depressed and she could tell like other tours like cm bar and all the bands i was hired for she could tell like when i called home i was stoked I was like bam like we're just killing it i'm making money and this music is awesome when i called home on the birds tour I was just like not happy. I was not myself. And if that's not an indicator, (laughs) show me one. Sure, yeah.
1: Right. I think you have to be in it. And if you're not, you're not. You know, there's nothing you can do about it. Right. Uh, So we kind of hit quite a bit of things on there. Uh, Is there an A Lot Like Bird song you want to throw in here? Maybe one of your favorites to play or anything like that?
0: (sighs) Next to Ungodliness from No Place.
1: And then we also kind of talked about uh, Alone as well. Is there one, one of those songs that you want to throw in there?
0: Yeah. Um, it's the one that is the Suicide Hotline phone number. It's an interlude in the middle of the album. It's just an incredible little piece. It's short. And the fact that it's a Suicide Hotline number. Yeah, I didn't know that that, that's what that
1: was. That's awesome. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's super. Deep. I know My that project
1: of... was a little more darker than. than...
0: Yeah, well, it is basically a view into Michael's subconscious at at the time. It's like it's literally a path into his consciousness, and uh, he was going through a lot. We we all were, Uh, and you know, if Michael listens, like like appreciate you, man. You you've done incredible things, and I cherish every single second we spent making music together. (laughs) And perhaps in the future, you know, who knows? But yeah, alone was an amazing. We worked
1: with him on three project, right?
0: Um, let's see. Well, a lot like birds and alone. Um, that's it.
1: Oh, okay. I didn't, he went. I thought he was in Cianvar for a little bit. Oh
0: yeah, he was. Uh, wow, well, I'm an idiot. Yeah, he played bass <laughs> for Sianbar, and he wrote bass on Stay Lost. He's a beast. That dude can do anything. <laughs> yeah, honestly. So. So
1: Cienvar and Royal Coda. Those are. I mean, they're two completely different projects, but they've got. I mean, it's literally the same lineup except for Kurt and Donovan, basically, and yeah. Michael, of course. But yeah uh, is, is there like any differences i mean I mean what how do you feel working on those two projects
0: well they they're always mental extensions of the other because we're but okay, so for instance, I love that you brought this up because look at Lee Rittenauer's discography. I mean, you saw that discography right? oh yeah, it's huge <laughs> so you're gonna find records that don't sound the same on his mm-hmm. discography because he's a diverse enough player so my goal is to aim for that kind of like musical Valhalla where it's like, okay, I can do like 50 different things and they'll all sound a little different or maybe a lot different. And, um, that's something that I, you know, that's a career oriented musician rather than like the drummer of fallout boy or that was just an example. Sorry, drummer of fallout boy. But (laughs) like, you know, like you aim to be in one band, that's your life. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I, too thirsty for that, I. I want to write ten songs in a day, and work with ten musicians a week. Like I just, and so it's always a push. It's a thirst to create more, um, more interesting, better stuff. And so, will some of Royal Coda sound like bar? Absolutely. Will some of it sound like a lot like Birds? Of course, because it's us. It's me. Yeah. And having a voice is important. But, I mean, I don't even go into records thinking I different from the last one i just express myself i'm like this is what it's important to me right now if it sounds the exact same so be it i just (laughs) i'm just i I have to express myself that's the whole point so uh, i
1: do this weird thing like before these interviews i do this really like i don't know if i'm probably not the only one who does this but it was really hard to do this for you specifically because like you said you're in pretty much every band (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but like I take uh, somebody's discography and I listen to it from the first song they released, all the way up until the last, the latest song they released. Wow. And yeah, and I do that because you can hear different growth. You can hear like the growth. You can hear uh, different sounds. You can hear like just as they release music, you can hear you know the difference and everything. Right. And uh, I I just think that's really cool. The Thing to to listen to and artists basically grow uh, with their projects,
0: <laughs> which is what I did growing up. All the drummers I listened to, I was like, okay, here, where's their discography? And you could hear the trajectory. You're like, oh my gosh, like they're playing with this guy this girl this person. Um, yeah i I've grown a lot of your record, and i I mean, like Kurt's solo stuff is. You know, I had to tone it down a lot to like groove based pocket stuff. Yeah. With yeah. Chops. But that stuff was so satisfying to play and record. And um, I anticipate that I'll do another Kurt record soon. Um, and like, you know, I don't know. I just, to me, give me a genre, you know, I will try to make it happen. I don't care if yeah. it's polka music, metal, like <laughs> You want me to try to make it feel good? I will give it a shot. I may not always succeed, but I'll give it a shot. And, um, I not to be self-aggrandized, but as an example of that, I will say that I've asked every artist I've worked with at some point, I've said, why me? Like, and that's, that's an honest question. You know, like, why Mm -hmm. did you hire me? Um, not in like a, I suck. So why am I here? It's more like, I'm just curious what your take on my playing is, because that's an important thing for me to consider. Yeah. Yeah. And the most, actually, every single artist I've worked with has said this. And this is, there's a little bit of wisdom in here for musicians, um, because like I said, no ego, just as an example. You know what? I don't know what it is, but you just make it feel good. Like you just (laughs) make the music feel good and can't explain it. Put my finger on it. But um, and that sort of feeds into my philosophy about being a musician. And that is that there is no right or perfect part. It doesn't exist because it's an expression. Yeah. And as long as you make the music feel good, it doesn't really matter what you play. Like, I mean, I'm talking like Vinnie Caluda would drop these like floor tom bombs in like ballads, jazz ballads. And you know, why was that acceptable? Why could you do that? Well, it's because he was so unapologetically convinced in his own playing and his own expression that you, you don't analyze it. Man, Vinny, uh, why did you play that drum fill in that one jazz? That was just way out of place, said no <laughs> one ever. Because, I mean, obviously you have to be fully good at what you do and practice at your instrument. You have to be competent. But once you reach kind of a virtuosic, like, Capability, who's gonna question you? You know? Yeah, that, for sure. That thing you did over that like samba was not what you usually do over a samba. You're blacklisted. Said no one ever. <laughs> you know, it feels good. <laughs> so, anyways, that's my take on that.
1: Is there a, f- a favorite song from Kurt Sandbar and Royal Coda?
0: I think my favorite song from Kurt might be Brain Lord. Because it was the first song I recorded for for him. And there, that groove like the, the the Brain Lord groove is just it's one of my favorite little tasteful pockets I've ever done. Um, and then uh, I mean, there's other amazing ones, but uh, that's off the top of my head. And you said Cianbar as well?
1: Yeah, yeah, Bar.
0: OK, Bar. My favorite Cianbar song is probably Your Tongue Ties because of the way it came together. Will Swan. We wrote that EP in like four days and we oh, recorded wow. it that it was kind of a stupid process. Um but Will Swan played that lick for me and I was like, dude, I can't even find the pulse, like the one. And he he was like, Hey, can you write a drum part over this? And he was like, And I was like, What the hell are you doing, man? I can't even tell what you're doing. (laughs) And um finally I played it on the snare and found the pulse. And I was like, Oh, this is in four. This is in common time. And then we decided we're like, Okay, well, this is gonna be kind of the poppy funky song on the EP. And uh I don't know, it's just that song there's so many great bar songs, but your tongue ties just kind of like it, it was always my funnest to play live as well, um, just a really the energy in that song is so positive and like energetic. Yeah. Um, favorite Royal Coda song hands down is Numbing Agent, which is ironic because it's a it's a single and it's a it's a very prominent one. But the reason I love Numbing Agent is because I feel like I can f- I can sort of feel our musical maturity in that song. So. Yeah like that song is almost structured like a pop song kind of crazy and it's really not a pop song uh in terms of like typical pe- like people's um like what people picture when they picture pop music but it's kind of like a verse chorus verse chorus bridge chorus and song and but it's still shreddy it has this bridge that just like kicks your face in yeah
3: um
0: like thematically and so When we play that chorus live, it it's like a kick. It's like a beautiful kick in the brain when I play it live. It's so powerful, (laughs) and the rhythms are just so infectious. And uh, no ego, but I see it in people's faces. Like people when they're watching us play that live, they're just like, "This is insane!" Like the the energy is through the roof, and it's emotional. Um, Kurt's lyrics are amazing. His singing was really good. So, Numbing Agent became kind of just this incredible experience as a song. That's my favorite Royal Code of Salt. Yeah,
1: that's awesome. I mean, Will Swan is a he's a beast at guitar, man. I
0: he's a master. That <laughs> for dude, sure. That dude doesn't even necessarily like like I'll tell him that I'm playing a groove in seven. He's like, I don't really know what that means. Just just um just play me the groove. He, <laughs> he doesn't like to get analytical about it, you know? Like I yeah. I could be playing a groove. Like the, the groove in Stay Lost. Or no, stay scared. The groove in the the verse of stay scared. The only way the engineer and I could classify that time signature was thirty three sixteen. Now that's the dumbest thing I've heard. Like that's that's like the nerdiest dumbest thing ever. Playing in thirty three sixteen is stupid. However, it's amazing to me that Will Swan was able to just like write a part over that, feel it, just like, like he he didn't want to count it or anything. He just felt it. And uh, there's some wisdom in that too. You know, cause I, I, I wrote it just by as well, and then learned it time signature later. So yeah, he's a beast.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's insane, man. You were featured in modern drummer
0: magazine. Yes. In 2017.
1: That's going to be a pretty big deal for a uh, post-hardcore drummer. I, don't, I I wouldn't imagine there's a lot of them that make it in that magazine, right?
0: Not that I know of <laughs> and the, the post-hardcore genre, um, is not as much of a drum centric genre in that for some reason, and I don't, you know, I'm not stepping on toes here. It's just, this is an observation, not an opinion. My observation is that the drummers in the scene just um, for some reason are kind of overshadowed by drummers in other scenes. And I'm not really sure why but uh and part of it could be popularity say because a lot of not a lot of post hardcore makes it like really big you know like yeah yeah, big, yeah for sure um probably because it's not easy to digest for the public just yeah i mean it's not a pop song it's like people are used to radio pop when they hear like a like a royal coda song like oh man what this is it's like what's happening so um <laughs> bless their hearts so um I don't know. And, and when I got the offer, Ben, my friend from Modern Drummer who interviewed me, he said that I had been on their radar for a while, which is a really cool feeling. Um, and he had all my albums researched and everything. And we had a great conversation. That interview was a lot of fun. But much like what you just brought up, uh, I haven't been hit up by Modern Drummer since. You know, it kind of a ghost in the wind. Like, obviously, the genre and the style of playing or whatever comes of it, doesn't really seem to have a huge place in the um, the the really really uh, prevalent public eye
1: oh for sure even in the drum
0: world so yeah yeah I think
1: I think it's the popularity aspect of it it's not very it's not very like you said digestible Uh, I enjoy it I thoroughly enjoy the the, you know poster core scene Uh, I it's amazing that dance Gavin dance is as big as they are Will Swan and, and Tillian and even Matt you know it's amazing that those guys are <laughs> like huge you know
0: yeah it's so, a weird niche it's a really yeah. weird niche and the, the dance gavin dance kind of landed perfectly like whatever they've created um seemed to be the like middle ground that stuck so like yeah. whatever middle ground between screaming and heavy and poppy they like nailed it somehow yeah and um and no, that, I
1: mean, they've been working at this for
0: a long time, 15,
1: yeah. 20 years now, you know, and they deserve it. Those oh, guys for
0: sure. like, Will, I'm, I'm good friends with Will and that dude deserves every of success he has. He's grinded so hard. Like, I think the last Royal Coda tour we did with Hail the Sun last year. Like this dude has I mean, he, he's he's so successful he chose to still come on the Royal Coda tour with Halo sun. And he drove the van. He's just like, yeah, I want to drive. I was like, Dude, <laughs> you don't have to drive. Like you have so much success and money and stuff. You don't have to do this. Yeah. But he, he grinded, you know, he drove the van every day and night. Um, and we had a great time. Like he's not afraid to still grind. It's yeah.
1: That's crazy. awesome.
0: That's passion.
1: Oh, for sure, man. The, yeah. uh,
0: deep late night conversations about the cosmos and Sam Harris. And, <laughs>
1: cool. so, oh, my wife. My wife told me about Sam Harris.
0: So, Sam Harris will make you a better person. That's yeah. a controversial <laughs> thing to say, but seriously, his podcast is so grounding and logical and beautiful. Um, yeah, yeah. you want to change your life, watch Sam Harris. My, my wife. Uh,
1: Harris. My wife listens to Sam Harris quite a bit. So he's awesome yeah all right y'all we're gonna stop this episode here and we're gonna continue it next week so be sure to tune in for the rest of it it gets really good next week with talks of like dance gavin dance and with taiga and love mischief so make sure to tune in next week for part two of the joe arrington saga and here it is this is it uh the sneak peek of cicadia's new single it's called speaking in tongues it's not out yet don't know if they're going to release it or not but their new EP comes out this fall be sure and go follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Cicadia OKC they also have a bunch of singles that you can go listen to and an EP on Spotify and Apple Music so make sure you go check those out that's all I got for you make sure to tune in next week and have a good day bye
3: The ancient dialect Is you preaching to light Hold a conference To pretend Your inference Is just in the end And view the words That you twist and turn To point the finger That tells them They'll burn And tells them They'll burn Hey.